And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Kind of a, a baritone Ben today. I'm sick. So <laughs> maybe that means my voice is lower. I'm trying my best not to kind of have that stereotypical sick kind of voice, but might lapse into that throughout the episode. It's winter, I have a cold. Do you want to sing some, like, Marvin Gaye songs? No. No, I do not. But, um, it is what it is. I'm just going to try and <laughs> get through it. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing, doing fine. Yeah? Yeah. We're inching ever closer to Christmas. I'm very excited about the coming Christmas season. You know, when all the ghosts come out. Yes, when all the ghosts come out to teach you the true meaning of, of Christmas. Christmas. That's right. Give to others, because we are dead. Yeah. Don't be dead like us. <laughs> Give to others. That's the real way of achieving immortality. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, sure. So... Did I, did I get Christmas Carol wrong? I don't... There are ghosts... <laughs> where, where are my dickens... <laughs> There are ghosts in Christmas Carol, yes, and that's a fine transition to the fact that today we are watching The Ghost of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's our um, fourth Universal Studios Frankenstein movie in the continuing saga, as it were. So, do you want to help out our listeners with a brief overview of the first three films, Sarah? Definitely. So, long-time listeners will already know the whole spiel about Mary Shelley and her awesome tragic goth life. <laughs> That's the title of her My... <laughs> debut album. <laughs> I was thinking of, like, is that a song from My Chemical Romance? <laughs> so if you want to hear the full spiel, you can go listen to episodes 26 and 48, respectively. But I'm just going to kind of, like briefly go over the plot of the novel and the films and just kind of leave Mary Shelley in those episodes. Mm -hmm. So Mary Shelley published Frankenstein anonymously at first in 1818 and then five years later published a second edition with her name attached. Um, and kind of the main difference between these two editions is the first one to me feels a bit more human in its concerns because it emphasizes failed parenthood on the part of Victor and his creature. Um, whereas the 1823 version emphasizes the religious themes more. Um, I get why she does this, because by this time she's reconnected with her estranged father. So I get it. I get it, Mary. But for me personally, the 1818 has more resonance. And the novel was a, a big hit, even when it was first published anonymously. So much so that the first play adaptation was in 1823, so the same year as the second edition being published, and this was an adaptation by Richard Brinsley Peake, and was titled Presumption, The Fate of Frankenstein. Now, kind of the reason why I bring these up is because 
out of these three things is kind of where we get the first universal Frankenstein. The main thing from the play being the creation of Fritz, the assistant. Mm-hmm. When Universal wanted to film Frankenstein in 1931, um, it was taking inspiration from the novel Frankenstein, as well as being pretty heavily influenced by Dracula. You know, it had come out that year, it was pretty successful, so they took some elements from Dracula, mainly creating a role for Edward Van Sloan to be a kind of a, a mentor figure. So the first Frankenstein came out in 1931, it's episode 26, and it currently ranks at number 8 on the list. Um, it adapts about half-ish of the novel. So the movie starts with Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, digging up bodies with Fritz, played by Dwight Fry, and they're digging up parts of, of bodies to create this creature. So when by the time that the film comes in, Victor's already going to make this monster. Um, he's very set on creating something of his own. Um, in the book, there's a little bit more of a preamble to it. But as the movie goes on, Henry succeeds in creating the creature, um, much to the dismay of his mentor, soon-to-be wife, and um, a family friend. And Henry takes this very seriously. He tries to be a good father to the creature, tries to teach him things, but Fritz is very abusive, and that leads the creature into kind of a, a violent spiral ultimately culminating in rampaging the countryside without really meaning to, <laughs> um, threatening Elizabeth, the bride-slash-fiancé, um, and ending in a windmill that gets burned up. Henry nearly dying in this windmill, and the creature presumably dying, but just, you know, we don't see his complete demise. And kind of the themes that we really took from this adaptation was the fact that the director, James Whale, is a gay man. The man playing Henry is Colin Clive, who's a gay man. And the film features a guy who is struggling with the idea of getting married. He's kind of pushed outside of society. Um, and so we saw a lot of queer themes in this film. Um, an identification of Henry as queer. Um, the creature not as queer yet but um, we do get there by the time we get to the sequel, Bride. Yeah, and, and the creature in the first film is still an outcast, right? Like, that's that's sort of the, the connection being made, is that the creature is an outcast the same way that, you know, um, gay people are outcasts in society, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and it's all very um, subtextual, you know? It's a fine movie on its own, and then if you put this lens on it, you can kind of pick up what we're putting down. But by and large, I feel like the main point of the first film is the cycles of abuse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fast forward four years later, it's 1935, and Bride of Frankenstein comes out. Now, the Bride of Frankenstein episode is number 48. It's currently ranked number nine, so just below the first Frankenstein. It's still directed by Whale, still starring Colin Clive, Oh my gosh, I haven't even mentioned Boris Karloff. Karloff is the creature. How could I not even mention him until this point? I'm sorry, Karloff fans. I'm very disappointed in myself. But in any case, 
Bride was the first horror movie that we watched that was after the Hollywood production code had been in place and enforced. Mm -hmm. um, so James Whale had a real pickle to deal with. How do you make a horror movie in the time of the code? And he managed to fucking do it because he's a genius. <laughs> and the way he managed to do it is by making the fear heteronormativity. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you what it's about. <laughs> so it picks up uh, right after the end of the first Universal film. The windmill is now ash, and we see that the creature is alive. And this is at about what you could argue is about the halfway point of the novel. So it still is adapting Mary Shelley's novel. Henry is recovering from the ordeal of surviving a, a windmill on fire, and he still is engaged, so he really should be, you know, starting to plan this wedding. But an old mentor of his, Dr. Pretorius, played by Ernest Lysiger, he's back in town, and he's like, no, Henry, come do experiments with me. You came up with how to make a brain that works. I know how to make the body that works, but you, you know the secret of the brain, so let's work together and make a new creature. Because by this point, they don't know that the creature... Like, the Karloff creature is alive. And we have a lot of, like, Henry going like, no, I really need to be focusing on my wedding, but I am very tempted at this idea of doing this. Meanwhile, Karloff, as the creature, is wandering in the wo woods. He's very wounded, and he comes across this small cabin where this blind old man lives. And they develop a really lovely friendship. And it's here where the creature learns to speak. It's very sparse, very small vocabulary, but the power of speech is pretty important. The creature runs into Dr. Pretorius, and the doctor's like, ah, this is how I can definitely make Henry do what I need him to do. And so they come up with a plan to get Henry to create a mate for the creature so he won't be so lonely anymore. Henry succumbs to this temptation. He creates the bride, um, the bride of Frankenstein, as it were, and this goes terribly. The creature's like, yes, finally, you, you want to date me? And she screams in his face. This breaks the creature's heart, so he blows up the castle. Dr. Pretorius dies. Henry almost dies, but does make it out and um, moves on with his life. That's the end of that film. I'm paraphrasing a lot, obviously. Please don't get mad at me for skipping some details here and there. But what's kind of interesting about Bride is, in the first Frankenstein, the queer themes were subtext. And they are a lot more explicit in Bride, which is surprising given that it's code times. But, but Ben made some really great points about how really the only successful relationships in Bride are between same-sex individuals. Henry and Dr. Pretorius is a productive um, relationship because they create the bride. Um, and then the creature with the blind man in the forest is like a positive, productive relationship. And Ben, I think your main point with Bride was that its fear was heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I feel like the queer subtext isn't so subtext. You know, it's it's fairly explicit. Yeah, it's it's Bride, Bride of Frankenstein is a movie about where the characters 
you know, the worst thing that can happen to them is uh, being forced to be normal. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why, like, Dr. Pretorius and all of his campy gayness is so fun. I really always, like, point to your part of the discussion in that episode as being, like, the best part of that episode. Because, like, I loved how you described the links between campiness and queerness and gothness. Gothiness? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a movie that, that linked together a lot of these aesthetics and subcultures uh, in a way that you can see, like, continue throughout the 20th century, right? Yeah. And, of course, after a bride comes into the picture, we get the son. <laughs> son of Frankenstein came out in 1939. Now, that's four years later, but it's significant because the horror genre kind of died in 36, mm -hmm. after Dracula's daughter. Bride of Frankenstein was the first horror movie after the enforcement of the code, and Son of Frankenstein is the, as the title of the, that episode implies, it's the renaissance of horror into the 40s. Mm -hmm. This is episode 66, if you want to go take a listen, and surprisingly, it is ranked number seven, above the original Frankenstein. Yeah, we, we quite liked Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, I'm also surprised we didn't get any, like, appeals or, like, hate mail yeah, no, about that. Yeah, no, no pushback. No. So Son of Frankenstein is a bit of a combo breaker in the sense that it's now directed by Roland V. Lee, no longer James Whale. We still have Karloff as the creature. Karloff is really the only continuing person on screen. Yes. Um, Basil Rathbone comes on as the titular son of Frankenstein, Baron Wolf von Frankenstein. Bella Lugosi joins as Igor, and Lionel Atwill is Inspector Krogh. The other reason why Son of Frankenstein is a bit of a combo breaker is we are no longer adapting any part of the novel. Right. Bride kind of wraps up basically what they were adapting from Mary Shelley's novel. The novel has more stuff in it, mainly because it has a framing narrative, which none of these adaptations have done. I think Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein yes. is the only one to really do it. Yeah. So, Son of Frankenstein is a little bit more free to kind of do what it wants. Mm -hmm. But it's still beholden to that legacy, and we see that personified in Basil Rathbone's character's uh, struggle with his own legacy. Mm -hmm. So, the plot of this movie features Wolf and his family returning to the estate, and the town of Frankenstein, previously known as Ingolstadt, the town hates him and his father's legacy. Your dad made a monster, it fucked us all up, and we're super traumatized. We hate that you're back here. Wolf, while exploring the castle, runs into Igor, who is a man who had been hanged, but lived. So he can't be tried again. What's that? Double indemnity or something? That's double jeopardy. Jeopardy. And along with meeting Igor, Wolf comes across their creature who is in a kind of comatose state. He decides to revive the creature in an attempt to restore the family honor, in kind of a weird way of being like, you know, if I restore the creature, I can show he's not a monster, you guys are just bigots, you know, he's just a man. Show the world that his dad was actually a genius, not a monster himself. Mm -hmm. The only issue is, the creature only follows Igor's commands. Side note, creature's back to being mute. Because mm -hmm. of the brain damage from being comatose, I guess. And Igor 
is instructing the creature to kill off the jurors who had sentenced him to hang. So Wolf discovers this, kills Igor, and as revenge, the creature goes to kidnap Wolf's son, Peter, who voiced Bambi. Yes. Which was, like, one of my favorite, like, fun facts about that movie. The son gets rescued at the climax of the film, with the final standoff between Inspector Krogh, who, by the way, has a prosthetic arm. His arm had been tugged off by the creature when he was a little boy. The inspector and Wolf fighting the creature, and the creature gets pushed into sulfur pits that are beneath the laboratory. The laboratory, I think, explodes? Yes, because the sulfur pits explode when the creature falls into them. Yeah, so that's destroyed, and Wolf decides to leave the castle and property to the town. They love him now, and they say goodbye. And that's the end of that film. I know that that might not sound like a very good movie when I just lay it out on paper like that. But it's really heckin' good. Um, we titled that episode The Renaissance of Horror because, well, it's the return of horror after this three-year-long break, but it also just relishes in scaring you. It shows violence. It has this, like, black humor to it with Igor, like, knocking on his, like, spine stump. And also, it's German expressionist as hell. It's beautiful. It's straight out of Caligari, almost. Like, it's it's great. Even down to the acting with a little bit of stock characters and the way that Basil Rathbone goes from, goes from terror to madness to the point where he shoots a man. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a little, like, over-dramatic or even just, like, melodramatic. But it works because it's the setting and everything. It just into its own premise, as we keep saying these last few episodes. Mm-hmm. It's also one of the times where we see Lugosi at his best. Yes. Yeah, you love Lugosi in Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's, it's, it's his best performance, probably. Mm-hmm. And I think the only problem we had with it is the creature, Karloff, is just reduced to a hitman. Yeah, he's, he's, he's muscle for Igor. Like, he's not... The story isn't about the creature anymore. Yeah. Um, You know, he's just a pawn. He's mute, so he can't actually engage with the other characters in at the same level as they are, you know, sparring with each other. Um, And the film really focuses on the tensions and relationships between Wolf, Igor, and the Inspector. Mm -hmm. Now, part of this is because it's not shackled by the troubles of adapting a novel into a totally different medium. And it's kind of too, I don't know, I think it's to its strength. Sure. Don't get me wrong, I love the novel, but doing something completely different is good too. Another thing about Sun that we did kind of acknowledge is is kind of a weak point for it, is that its theme isn't about a societal... Thing in the way that Bride was about heteronormativity, right. um, or the original was about cycles of abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Sun is about themes of madness, legacy, and vengeance, and those are really good themes. But they don't point to something that like really resonates with something in society. Yeah, they're not as universal. But it's a universal picture, Ben. <laughs> now I keep saying like Sun wasn't shackled by the 
pains of adapting a thing. Um, that's even to the point of how much Sun kind of retconned parts of its own world in yeah. order to make it work. So I kind of mentioned this already, but they renamed the town from Ingolstadt to Frankenstein. And that's partly also because it's no longer Baron Frankenstein, it's Baron von Frankenstein. Yes. So the idea be behind that kind of title is, you know, you're the Baron of this town. Mm -hmm. We see Henry's name Germanicized into Heinrich instead of Henry, which is I felt was just like a way to really underline the Baron von Frankenstein part of things. And really just like the castle appearance yes. is is completely different to the point where it's a little comical. Um, and the lab is no longer a lighthouse that's like kind of a ways away from the castle. It's Frankenstein's garage, you know, his yeah. man cave laboratory yeah. in the backyard um, that's above sulfur pits as well. That's not in the original. Yeah, exactly. Or in the book, I should say, as well. But as many Universal films during this time, it does have that issue of, what year is it? Yes. It's like the vague early 1900s. The first two Frankensteins, because they're adapting the novel, they can kind of be like, well, we're in like the 1890s. You know, we're, we're kind of in this time period. But it's also kind of, what year is it? So that is the current legacy from Frankenstein to his bride to his son. Mm -hmm. So what's the ghost about? Right. So let's, let's remember that bit about retcons and what year is it and how the story kind of shifts from movie to movie because that's something we're going to be seeing again in Ghost of Frankenstein for sure. Ghost of Frankenstein marks the point at which the Frankenstein movies shifted from being A pictures at Universal to being B pictures. Is part of that just where we're at in terms of the industry as a whole seeing horror? Yeah, that's a big part of it. The other part of it is, you know, the current administration at Universal being very adverse to spending money on movies, um, given that at this point in time, Universal is basically owned by, like, a capital loans company that took over the studio when the Lemley family lost control because they couldn't pay back, like, their loans on making really expensive movies. Um, Thanks, James Whale. The other thing that contributed to this, however, is the success of Wolfman. Mm -hmm. So if you remember from that episode, Wolfman cost, like, $180,000 and grossed, like, over a million dollars, right? So what that kind of told Universal was that horror movies could be highly profitable without needing to spend much money on them. But the key was having, you know, identifiable aspects that they could market. So, you know, Lon Chaney, certainly they wanted to turn into their big new horror star. Wolfman also had Claude Rains and Bell Lugosi, and it had like a recognizable monster that you could put on the poster and these kind of things, right? Uh, Ghost of Frankenstein would be given the smallest budget of any of the Frankenstein movies up to this point. Obviously, uh, Boris Karloff would not be returning to play the monster. And that was the big thing that had kept Universal from really making another Frankenstein movie up to this point. Karloff had been dissatisfied with how small his role was in Son of Frankenstein. He had left Universal to go work at Columbia for a while, being a mad scientist over and over again. <laughs> and at this point in time, he was on Broadway in Arsenic and Old Lace. Right. But the producer of Ghost of Frankenstein... George Wagner, 
decided that the studio's new horror star, Lon Chaney Jr., could easily step into the role of the monster. For one thing, it's always been a heavily makeup-dependent role. So there was kind of this idea like, well, as long as, you know, you have a good enough actor behind that makeup, we can probably get away with it. And there was fear in the past of replacing Karloff just because Karloff had that name brand value that Universal had given him because he was Frankenstein. Like, when they first hired Karloff to be the monster, it was, we don't really need an actor to do this. We just need some rando. Oh, hey, you come and do it, right? Yeah. And then the the monster turned Karloff into that star. The decision, therefore, was if we're going to replace Karloff, we need to replace him with someone else who will carry that name brand value as well. And they had just created that with Lon Chaney in The Wolfman, which had been hugely successful. So now audiences knew Lon Chaney, you know, knew he was the new, you know, horror icon, right? The other thing about Lon Chaney Jr. was that he naturally possessed the sort of height and bulk uh, that Karloff gained through wearing, like, lifts and shoulder pads Yeah. when he played the monster, um, to the point where, once in the full costume, Lon Chaney Jr., as the monster, was six foot nine. Wow. How tall is he normally? Like, just plain six feet, right? Uh, Lon Chaney, before makeup, was six foot three and 220 pounds. And after makeup, six foot nine and two eighty four. Wow, that's forty pounds of a costume. Yeah. Dang. So, Cheney went immediately from shooting Wolfman to shooting Ghost of Frankenstein, and this once again meant working long hours with studio makeup artist Jack Pierce, who, as we went over in our Wolfman episode, Cheney did not have as good a relationship with as Boris Karloff had had. Yeah. As it turned out, Chaney was allergic to the rubber headpiece that was part of the um, makeup, and he actually developed a really horrible rash on his forehead from it. At one point um, during filming, he grew so uncomfortable in the makeup that he ripped the headpiece off and tore a gash in his forehead requiring production to be shut down for several days while he recovered. Wow. So, yeah, not... He didn't have a fun time. He He's really trying to be the man of a thousand faces, though. Yeah. The script was initially written by Eric Taylor, who had also contributed to Black Friday in 1940 and Black Cat in 1941. So, not the best track record. His draft for the story featured the character of Wolf von Frankenstein from Sun in the lead, and centered on Igor returning to lead a vengeful mob of society's rejects with the monster as sort of the the muscle behind this revolution of freaks. Ultimately, the budget was not enough to afford Basil Rathbone's return, and he was also busy with Universal's series of Sherlock Holmes films at this point regardless. Yeah. Additionally, the specifics of the story were considered to be too depressing and also too close to the notorious box office bomb that was Freaks uh, to be produced. So the basic skeleton of the story, which is to say Frankenstein's son and Igor, you know, and the monster and everything coming back and, and, and this kind of basic outline, was kept, but the specifics were rewritten. 
to perform that rewrite, veteran writer Scott Darling was brought in. Born in Toronto in 1898, Darling started his career in 1914 as the writer of the Hazards of Helen movie serial, (laughs) writing 119 episodes over two years. Darling came to Universal Studios in 1921 when Carl Lemley offered to let him direct films as well as write. When talkies came in, he adapted well to writing dialogue, but found he did not have the skills needed to direct sound pictures, uh, so he stuck to writing. He continued to write for Universal throughout his career, um, racking up 197 writing credits before his death in 1952 from drowning. To direct the film, Universal brought on Earl C. Kenton, a director who was no stranger to horror, but we haven't seen him in a very long time. Yeah, because his name is a little familiar. Kenton directed Island of Lost Souls back in 1932. Shit, son. Um, That's like number four on the list or something. It is, yes. So after Island of Lost Souls, uh, which was a Paramount film, he continued to work for that studio until 1935. He then worked for Columbia from 1935 to 1938. From there to RKO uh, for a few years. And finally came to Universal... And he's been doing a few things at Universal now. His previous film in 1942, North to the Klondike, uh, featured Broderick Crawford, who we saw in um, Black Cat, uh, but also Lon Chaney Jr. and Evelyn Ankers uh, from Wolfman. Ankers would be brought back for Ghost of Frankenstein, just like her co-star, and it would be the second in what was going to become a very long line of horror B-movie performances from her for Universal Studios. Consistently opposite Lon Chaney? Often opposite Lon Chaney. Not consistently, but often. Um, Were they trying to make a a thing between the two of them for for the tabloids or anything? I'm not sure. Um, I know that Anchors didn't like Chaney. Yeah, he was kind of a dick to her on the Wolfman set. And they don't really have any chemistry. No. In this film, Anchors plays Elsa Frankenstein, granddaughter of the original Dr. Henry Frankenstein, so therefore cousin of Peter Frankenstein, because with Rathbone not returning, the writers had to invent another son of Frankenstein, a younger brother of Wolf's named Ludwig. She might be named Elsa because Elsa Lancaster played Mary Shelley slash the bride. Maybe. So... In the role of Ludwig, and thus sort of the top billing role in this movie, I guess, we have Sir Cedric Hardwick. That name also sounds familiar. Yes, we've previously seen him in The Ghoul, and then he was also the villain in Invisible Man Returns. Oh yeah, okay. He's an accomplished Shakespearean actor who was knighted at the age of 41 in 1934, uh, at the time the youngest actor to have been so honored. At this point in time, he was living in the United States, uh, acting in film in Hollywood and on stage in New York. Also returning from Wolfman is Ralph Bellamy, mm. uh, who was sort of the, the detective in Wolfman, <laughs> I guess. Uh, the 38-year-old actor plays a very similar role here, uh, a police officer type part. Bellamy had been acting in film since 1931 and had received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor in 1937, but by this time his career was sort of on a downswing, 
and he would spend much of the 40s and 50s acting on stage uh, to much better success before sort of staging a comeback um, as an older character actor in the 60s. Despite having been shot to death in the previous film, actor Bela Lugosi was afforded a great opportunity when it was decided that his character of Igor would reappear. Yay, work! Uh, the writers figured that if Igor could survive a hanging, why not some bullets? <laughs> so, we last saw Lugosi in a very brief role in Wolfman. Since then, he has starred in Black Dragons for Monogram. Is that another of the Monogram Nine? Yes, with producer Sam Katzman. It was a yellow peril propaganda movie where Lugosi Ugh. plays a mad scientist who's working for the Japanese in order to brainwash American businessmen into becoming fifth columnists. <laughs> That's, that's quite something. Yep. Igor is not the only character who is resurrected from Son of Frankenstein. We see, like, the village council again from Son of Frankenstein in this movie. And council members, uh, played by Michael Mark and Lionel Belmore, are in those scenes, uh, despite the fact that their characters were killed in Son of Frankenstein, um, <laughs> Universal just was like, oh yeah, we need the council members back. Just, you know, get those actors back yep. without really thinking about the what continuity Yeah, from one movie to another. Also lucky to be appearing in this film <laughs> is Lionel Atwell. Oh, hey! Who is in a supporting role as Dr. Frankenstein's villainous assistant. We sort of covered Atwell's fall from grace in last week's episode, uh, so if you want to learn more, you can... Take a listen to that. Um, but Atwill was beginning a point in his career now where he would not be appearing in large roles. So, you know, he's, let's see, at least fourth or fifth build in this movie, you know? It must feel a little odd for him because he was probably, like, higher build in the last Frankenstein film. Yes, as yeah. the inspector. Like, he, he's, like, a main character in that. And he, he does, like, a really amazing physical acting kind of job. Yes, yes, he, he really is quite good in that movie. So, uh, Ghost of Frankenstein was released on March 13th, 1942, and was yet another success for Universal Studios, which proved to the studio executives that they did not need Karloff in order for the profitable Frankenstein series to continue. Nor spend money to make money. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so how are we watching this? Well, Sarah, like all of the other Universal Frankenstein movies, you can find Ghost of Frankenstein on the Universal Legacy Collection, and you can find the film online to stream on YouTube, Google Play, and the PlayStation Video Store. So, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can check out our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Check it out, watch along, and in the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching The Ghost of Frankenstein, directed by Earl C. Kenton from 1942. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching 
The Ghost of Frankenstein from 1942, directed by Earl C. Kenton. Ben, what did you think? This was fine. It was fine. It's fine. They're fine. It's it's an okay movie, yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It's it's a fun use of an hour. It's it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. So beyond saying it's fine, tell us what it's about. So I'm trying to get the chronology of the series kind of right. right in my head because like all of the movies, this film definitely will make you ask, like, what year is it? And now that it's 1942, also, what country is this? Where is it? Yeah. So, here's the evidence. I want... Come over to my cork board, where I've got the strings and the pictures. You have this crazy look in your eye. Um, Let me lay out the evidence for you. So, the original movie, here's what we knew. The Frankensteins were the nobility of this village. Mm -hmm. This village was within walking distance of the Frankenstein... Like, Ancestral Home, which kind of looked like a, a nice mansion. Yeah. That was in walking distance of a cemetery, which was in walking distance of a, like, big abandoned lighthouse. Yeah. Um, which, which is weird, because that lighthouse was nowhere near, like, a coast. And then that was within walking distance of the University of Ingolstadt, which, you know, generally makes you feel like... Therefore, it's set in Ingolstadt, even though, like, Ingolstadt is, like, a city and not, like, a small village. But regardless, Ingolstadt is in Germany. and you know It's like fr- a suburb. So we're probably in Germany. Yeah. You know, Frankenstein, that's a German name. Okay, cool, we're in Germany. What year is it? Well, we've still got nobility. So it has to be before the First World War. Okay. But we're using electricity and Tesla coils and shit, and people are wearing, like, suits... So we're probably, like, post, you know, Tesla. So we're between, like, 1890 and, like, 1914. That's the original movie, okay? I mean, they do bring a man to life, which is not actually possible. So the idea of, like, well, it has to be this far scientifically. No, listen, for sure. Yeah, I'm just just throwing it out there. I gotta just, you gotta work with me somehow on this. You see me. Yeah. You see me. I'm, I'm flexible. I'm, I'm listening. For sure. So that's our time range for the first movie. The second movie both confirms and denies this. Yes. Because of its framing narrative. So the second movie has a framing narrative where we're in 1816, the year without a summer. We've got Mary Shelley. And she's apparently just told the story of the first movie to Percy Shelley and Lord Byron. And now she's going to tell us the second half. Now, the original Frankenstein novel is set in the 1790s, because, you know, it was written in 1816, and and we're going, you know, it took place a bit in the past. But when Mary Shelley tells us the story of the second movie, we get confirmation that it's probably set in that 1890s to 1910s kind of time frame that the first movie is set in, because Dwight Fry's character in that movie goes to a cemetery and reads dates off of a tombstone, including a guy who was dead in 1894. Yes. So at the very least, it's after 1894. Mm-hmm. Now, Son of Frankenstein takes place a generation later. Uh, we've got the the village has, like, a distinct name. It's now the village of Frankenstein. We talked about that in the intro. And, you know, so that's a bit of a retcon. We've got Frankenstein's son, Wolf, and he was raised by his mother in England, and he's old enough now that he's married, and he's got a young son. And also is, like, fairly 
knowledgeable when it comes to science. So it's more yes. than just like he married young and he's 18. Like he's probably like mid 20s at yeah. the earliest. At the earliest. He might be even a little bit older. Um, Basil Rathbone was certainly, uh, you know, in his 40s when he made that movie. So that sort of gives you the sense that maybe Son of Frankenstein is set relatively contemporary to the movie because if it's a generation after, you know, the early. 20th century, that puts us in about the 1930s, which is certainly weird since that movie was made in 1939 and we're in Germany and, well, where are all the Nazis? Yeah. Right? Gets a little weird. We know from Son of Frankenstein, by the way, that Henry Frankenstein died in Germany. Like, it's implied that him and Elizabeth must have split up and she took Wolf to England and... We don't even hear about the second son of Frankenstein in that movie. Yeah. Because he's made up for this movie. So we come to this movie, where we have Ludwig Frankenstein, presumably Wolf's younger brother, since he's called the second son of Frankenstein, and he didn't inherit the titles that Wolf inherited. And he has like an adult, 18-year-old, if not a little bit older daughter, like a marrying age kind of daughter, when, like, his older brother's son was, like, you know, five. Yeah. So it's, like, a little bit later in time after that. I mean, maybe they had kids at different times. Sure. But just think about how old Ludwig looks. Here's the funny part of that. So, like, I had that same thought, right? Like, Cedric Hardwick looks really old, especially compared to Basil Rathbone. He's a year younger than Basil Rathbone. Ooh. Ooh, is Basil Rathbone just, like, completely unproblematic and that's why he ages like fine wine? <laughs> also, <laughs> Lionel Atwell's character is described as being Frankenstein's mentor, but, like, looking at them side by side, Cedric Hardwick looks older. Lionel Atwell is eight years older than Cedric Hardwick. Cedric Hardwick, what are you doing? So, regardless... I guess what I'm trying to say is, no matter what way you slice it, we've got to be in, like, Nazi-era Germany by this point. No matter how you do the math. Well, see, here's the thing I noticed. Mm. Uh, the police here are wearing all black and in very smart-looking uniforms. Yeah, the police don't have any insignia on them. No. But they definitely look a little... Um, SS. Yeah, a little bit. Like, they've got that jackboot kind of look to them. But there's no, like, insignia anywhere. No one ever says the word Germany in this movie. Like, this movie takes place in another place and another time, somewhere else. Yeah, they make... Somewhen else. They take great pains. So, Ben will explain the plot of the movie in a minute, but I will just say that, like, in the beginning... Igor is like, friend, creature, we, we need to get the fuck out of here. Let's, let's go this way, to a better place. Hey, we'll go visit your half-brother, <laughs> I guess? He lives in this other country, in another better country, like, specifically not naming it. And then when Igor, Igor is talking to Bowman, he's, he's like, you'll be the best doctor in the state. And I will rule this country. Yeah. Like, there's, yeah, they go out of their way never to mention it. So I just wanted to bring that up because it makes watching this movie really weird. It's just this weird disconnect that's going on between, like, where is this? Okay, so plot. Yeah. Lay it on me. 
So we open in the village of Frankenstein, our traditional setting for these movies, and the villagers are unhappy because apparently everything in the village sucks. Like, their crops are bad, and they've got, like, a drought, and, like, people And my are... children cry every night. Yeah. Like, people are laying out, like, real upsetting issues that are huge economic social problems, and this woman's like, my children whine. Yeah, and, and people Sorry. are starving, and just the village is on hard times, and they're convinced that this is because there's a curse on the village because the, the castle is still standing. Now, as Sarah pointed out in the intro, um, Baron Frankenstein gifted the estate to the village, so it's theirs to do with as they will. And the villagers are afraid that Igor, who is still alive and did not die because bullets can't stop Igor, I guess, uh, they're afraid that he is going to bring back the monster because the monster, as you may remember, fell into a sulfur pit. And now it seems like that sulfur, like, cooled down and hardened somehow, because basically the creature's just encased in, like, solid rock-hard sulfur rock. Um, and Igor's just, like, sitting by there every day, like, playing his, um... Clarinet. Yeah. Oboe? Oh, his woodwind instrument, um, trying to get the monster to come back. So the villagers are very concerned. So they decide they're going to, as one villager says, blow up the castle! And that villager... <laughs> like, they go from, like... What what we gonna do? And this guy's like, blow it up! And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. The villager who suggests blowing up the castle is Dwight Fry, who I, I didn't mention in the intro because that that's all he is in this movie. He shows up for, like, one shot to be the villager who suggests blowing up the castle, and, and that's it. You wouldn't know it was him until he speaks, because he has such a distinctive voice, but he looks, um, like, it's ten years later, mm. you know, from Dracula. He looks ten years older than what you think of. From the Dwight Fry you picture in your head, you know? Sure. So the villagers go to the castle, and the castle has morphed appearance yet again. Um, it's gone from being, you know, the, the manor house it was in the original movie to the gothic castle it was in the second movie to the expressionist Tim Burton castle it was in the <laughs> third movie. And we're back to just kind of like a traditional medieval gothic castle. The other thing that's happened in this movie is the location of, like, Frankenstein's lab and, like, the sulfur pits seems to have, like, morphed to being, like, within the castle dungeons in this movie. So that's kind of, this is the movie where that shift occurs, where, where Castle Frankenstein and the lab become the same place. The villagers go to the castle, they blow up the castle, and this disturbs the sulfur encasing the creature, uh, which enables the creature to become free, and Igor and the creature basically escape uh, as they blow up the castle around them. And then, like, as Sarah said, Igor's like, let's get the hell out of here. That's GTFO. Yeah. Igor feels that the creature is weakened from its indeterminate amount of time encased in sulfur and wants the creature to be well again. So he's going to bring the creature to the second son of Frankenstein, who apparently, you know, didn't go off to England. So in my head, I guess, you you know, the only thing that makes sense is, like, Elizabeth got the elder son and, like... Henry got the younger son who stayed in Germany with his dad. Like, that's... Um, that's some, like, parent trap level shit. Right. So, anyways... Maybe they're long-lost twins. <laughs> so, this guy lives in a village called Viseria, which is, like, a small, you know, little village that also has this doctor who has a mansion who we learn that Ludwig is a brain doctor. Um, he seems to be both, 
like a psychologist, psychiatrist, and also like a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. Just like brain doctor in general. And he's got, you know, this big mansion that also has his laboratory and his operating room and like is also the asylum for his patients and also has secret passages and dungeons beneath it because, hey, why not? We're four films deep into this movie. I mean... The idea of an insane asylum having dungeons is, is is upsetting in and of itself. Well, and like, it's just like, oh, it's a horror movie. Of course the house has secret passages. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. Igor and the monster arrive in the village. And someone saw the first Frankenstein. So there's a little girl in the village who sort of befriends the monster and the monster befriends her, but the villagers don't understand. And they try to, you know, get in their way. And in the process of that, the monster just straight kills like two of the villagers and they separate him and the girl and they chain him down and they lock him up. And everyone's like, oh shit. And Igor's like, oh shit. And from the villagers of Viserys' point of view, this is just like a super strong maniac. So they want to send the town prosecutor, Eric Ernst, to go see, you know, the local town brain doctor and see if he can take a look at this maniac and and give a diagnosis. So Ludwig Frankenstein, um, in his, like, work-at-home lab, um, has two assistants. Dr. Kettering, who is, like, a young, handsome stack of cardboard, and Dr. Bomer, who is Lionel Atwell. And... Lionel Atwell's character here, Dr. Bomer, has like a very thinly, vaguely sketched background, but what we're able to kind of pick up is that he was Frankenstein's mentor and taught Frankenstein everything he knew, um, Ludwig Frankenstein, that is, and then something went wrong, question mark, question mark, question mark, with one of Bomer's experiments, question mark, and Bomer's... It was a miscalculation. And there's like an implication some people died, and so now Bomer's status in the medical community has fallen so significantly that, like, his former student's the only person who will hire him, and he's working as his former student's assistant. Ludwig also has a daughter, who I mentioned earlier, Elsa. So, Eric comes to Ludwig, is like, hey, you need to take a look at this guy. Eric and Elsa uh, are also an item. Yes, uh, because Eric is Ralph Bellamy, and he's a young leading man. Young? He's a leading man, and Elsa is uh, Evelyn Anchors and is a leading lady. Ergo, they are an item. Ludwig says to Eric, like, you know, I'm really busy, maybe later. And after Eric's left, Igor shows up and is like, hey, Frankenstein, I know who you are. You know who I am. You know what the deal is. The maniac they got in the town's the monster. And you have to help me make the monster well again. Because if you don't, I'm going to tell everyone that you're like... You know, not just a Frankenstein, but, like, the Frankenstein in terms well, son of... Son of. Yes. That, that, you know, you're related to all of this stuff, and, and that's going to probably negatively impact your life. <laughs> and so Ludwig's like, okay, for sure, I'll help you. They go down to the village. Uh, upon seeing Ludwig Frankenstein, the monster freaks out, like, as if... Like, as if Cedric Hardwick has, like, enough of a resemblance to Basil Rathbone and Colin Clive that the monster can, like, kind of recognize a Frankenstein when he sees one. He doesn't. And the monster breaks free, and there's a lot of chaos. And in the chaos, Igor is able to kind of escape with the monster and then bring the monster back to Frankenstein's place where Frankenstein can kind of work on him. Now, 
Ludwig Frankenstein somehow is in possession of the diary of his father, Henry Frankenstein, which we saw in Son of Frankenstein, and the notes of Wolf Frankenstein, his older brother from Son of Frankenstein. So, like, I don't know, when Wolf was leaving the village of Frankenstein at the end of, like, the last movie, he just stopped off in Viserion and was like, this is your problem now, and then just, like, kept going. I mean, he they were going back to, like, America or something, right? Like, you made it all the way to continental Europe. You should go see your brother, dude. So, he's got the journals to work off of. So he, even though it's not really his field, like, he can figure him, his shit out. Now, unfortunately, when the monster gets brought to Frankenstein's place, uh, the monster does as the monster tends to, which is he has a bit of a freakout, and he kills Dr. Kettering. So that's kind of problem number one. we got to, like, sweep that under the rug. <laughs> um, Frankenstein's first impulse is that the monster needs to be destroyed. And obviously that hasn't gone super well in the past, but Frankenstein, re like, reasons that, you know, the monster was assembled, from bits and pieces, so let's just disassemble him. Which, like, that seems pretty reasonable. It's a logical conclusion. However, what stops Ludwig from doing this is a visit from the ghost of Frankenstein! That's the name of the movie. It's, it's literally supposed to be his dad's ghost literally appearing to him and being like, I worked really hard on this, so don't break it. <laughs> like, you can come up with a different way. Like, he's only evil because he has an evil brain, an abnormal brain. <laughs> so what if you gave him a better brain? Then he would be better, right? Colin Clive's been dead for five years at this point. So the ghost of Frankenstein is like this wavy, out-of-focus, like, superimposed effect of just Cedric Hardwick minus a mustache pretending to be Colin Clive, talking to himself. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. But what is kind of neat is because it's Cedric Hardwick, it sounds almost like he's talking to himself. Sure. And where the ghost is appearing is all the equipment that you need to, like, power up the monster. For sure. You know? So it's kind of like, is it a ghost or is it madness? So... Is he Hamlet? <laughs> so, um, with the idea that he just needs to give the monster a better brain, Frankenstein figures, well, he killed Kettering, Kettering was a good dude, we can put Kettering's brain in the monster, and that fixes both problems. Bada-bing, like, bada-boom, it's fixed. Exactly. And Igor is like, no, see, you put Kettering's brain in there, and the monster's gonna be your friend. Right now the monster's my friend, and I want to keep my friend so I'm not all alone. My body's useless. I got this broken neck. I got all these bullets in me. Um, <laughs> when I drink, water just pours out of me. Yeah. Um, like, I shouldn't be alive by any stretch of the means. So take my brain out of my body and put it into the monster's body so we can be together forever. And Ludwig's like, no, you're super crazy and evil. And the only thing that makes you not, like, a horrible threat to everyone is that you basically have like, a super nerfed body. So, like, if we put you in the monster's body, who knows? Like, you would be a monster far worse than any the world had ever known kind of thing. So no no dice on that. Meanwhile, Eric and the cops back in the village are pretty sure that Frankenstein is harboring the escaped maniac, and they don't find Frankenstein's answers of what happened to Dr. Kettering very, like, convincing. 
But after, like, searching the place and seeing that nothing's there, they leave him alone. No questions about why he has a dungeon. Yeah, which... Why do you have a dungeon, Doctor? For why is more, it... For the more violent offenders. Excuse me? Why is it under the, like, lab? Like, why Why does he have secret past... Because he's experimenting with people's brains and people who are insane, quote-unquote, are able to give consent. Right, but, like, why does it... Why... There's so many bad things here. I Like, I get what you're talking about. I'm just saying, why does he have secret passages and things? Like, he has these things because his dad had these things in the original Frankenstein <laughs> castle, right? Like, they're here because they're just things that a Frankenstein has. But it doesn't actually make sense for this Frankenstein to have them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um. So, in order to, like, make sure the monster is strong enough to undergo this operation, they... You know, stick him full of the old electrodes and pump electricity in him. And, you know, there's a they, they do this scene just so that they can do all of the Tesla coils and strict fadden equipment, you know, because that's just, you have to do that in a Frankenstein movie. It's in the contract. Because, like, I'm sitting here going, why does he have this stuff? Like, yeah. if he's a psychologist and or brain surgeon, like, why do you have all this strict fadden equipment in your lab? Like, you just happened to have... Electrotherapy, dude. I Okay, you know what? Asked and answered. <laughs> so, the monster's got some strength, so he decides he's going to take a walk out to the village. No, Igor has explained to him, we're going to switch your brain, bud. Yes. And he's like, ah. So, he goes out to the village... And goes back to the little girl he made friends with. And he kidnaps the little girl in the process accidentally burning down her house. And brings her back to the uh, Frankenstein house. And, and the monster is still mute, by the way, in this movie. But he sort of signs to Dr. Frankenstein that he wants the little girl's brain. Like, if you're going to replace my brain, I'm cool with that. I'm aware that my brain is abnormal. But, like, give me... <laughs> The little girl's brain, so I can be like a happy, innocent little girl. Ugh. And they're it's like, so dumb. they're like, uh, no. And, uh, he you know. He gets real mad about this. Yes. Elsa takes the girl from him and <laughs> just leaves the room. And Dr. Frankenstein lures the creature into the operating chamber and they do the operation. Except. Igor has, on the sly, made a deal with Dr. Bomer to actually put Igor's brain in the monster instead of Kettering's. And, you know, you might be wondering, well, what does Dr. Bomer get out of that? Well, Igor tells Bomer that he will be, like, the head of the medical profession in this country. And Bomer's like, okay, how does me putting your brain in the monster's body do that? And Igor's like, well, once my brain's in the monster's body, I'm going to take over this country... And then just appoint you to be the head of the medical yeah. profession in this country. Like, like it he's, doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, like Igor, again, what year is it and what country is it? Because the best I can figure, the best I can figure is what Igor is saying is, I'm gonna go kill Hitler and then <laughs> become the new Fuhrer and as the monster, <laughs> as the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> You know, and I'm going to replace, oh. you know, um, all the Nazi mad scientist doctors with Lionel Atwell. Mad scientist doctors. 
Oh, are you okay? Uh, yeah. So somehow this convinces Bowman to fucking do this. Yes. And without telling Frankenstein, they put Igor's brain in the monster's body. Now, as you can imagine, that's a pretty um, stressful, trauma-inducing surgery. So it, it takes the monster a while to recuperate, right? So they've got him recuperating at the house. Well, you know, what's a good recuperation time if you're the writer and you're thinking like, okay, I need to just kind of cut quickly to the next thing that happens? Well, two weeks, right? So we go into the village... And the villagers are starting to get really angry. They're up in, you know, your usual torch and pitchfork mob because we're coming near to the end of the movie. And the reason why they're in this mob is because the girl has been missing. (laughs) The girl that the monster kidnapped has been missing for two weeks. What have they done with her? Why did... Why? Like, like they knew that the monster took the girl from the village. They took the girl away from the monster, gave the girl to Elsa... Why didn't Elsa just bring the girl back that night? Why did they still have the girl? So, anyways, apparently the dad was told, oh yeah, your girl died in the fire. And he's like, right, but no bones were ever found. So it's like I the think, family up in here. Yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, so the dad's like, well, I think she was friends with that maniac. And I think, you know, we haven't been able to find the maniac. And we're pretty sure that if anyone in town would be, you know, sheltering a maniac, it would be the guy who runs the insane asylum. So let's go burn down Frankenstein's house. (laughs) Let's blow it up. (laughs) (laughs) So the mob goes and Ralph Bellamy, uh, Eric Ernst, comes in on horseback like he's Batman at the end of Dark Knight Returns and is like, no, like, we're not going to be an angry mob. Like, you can't take the law into your own hands. This is the weapon of the enemy. I am the law. (laughs) And uh, he says, like, okay, give me, like, five minutes to go in, talk to Frankenstein, see what's going on, you know. And And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, reasonable. So he goes in, and meanwhile, you know, the monster's (sighs) starting to come around, starting to regain consciousness, and Frankenstein's like, hey, Dr. Kettering, like, how's it going? And the monster, who, you know, is played by Lon Chaney Jr., says, in Bella Lugosi's voice, I am Igor! <laughs> I'm going to kill you, Frankenstein! And it's, it's great. It's, it's Lon Chaney, like, mouthing the words, and, and Bella Lugosi's voice coming out of the mouth. It's great. So, because this is an insane asylum, um, Frankenstein's got some security measures. Uh, notably, he has gas, like just like sarin gas that he can just pump into the house for security. So, he starts to do that to kill Igor Monster and, I guess, Bomer uh, as he's trying to get away from them. Eric runs in and is like, what the fuck? Um, he's like, Elsa, what's been going on? And she's like, I don't know. What has been going on? Yeah. Like... And then, like, Eric continues to run in to see where the monster is and everything, and she runs up and grabs the kid. The mob's running in. Yeah, they've she's had... Like, she's had the kid the whole yeah, time. Yeah, The mob is like, this is taking too long. They run in, and she just gives the kid back to them. So, like, why didn't they do that earlier? Yeah, why? You wouldn't have a, had a mob at your door. Anyways, the mob runs in as the gas is getting pumped into the house, so that's not a great scene. Um, eventually the mob kind of retreats because, like, you know, Eric realizes, like, hey, there's gas and we need to get everyone out of here. Um, and meanwhile, you know, Eric, Elsa, the kid, the villagers all get out of the house. 
but Bomer and Frankenstein and the Igor monster are still in the lab. And Igor comes to the horrifying realization that he can't see. And this is actually the part of the movie where Lon Chaney, as the monster, starts walking all, like, stiff with the arms out in front like you do when you're, you know, doing a parody of the Frankenstein monster today. That's not how Karloff ever played the monster. The reason why we in pop culture think that's how the monster walks is because he's blind from this movie in the series onwards. Anyways, Igor is quite upset about being blind, and Frankenstein explains, yeah, Bomer, you fucked up. Kettering and the monster have the same blood type. The monster and Igor don't, so, like, the brain isn't compatible, and he's not getting, like, nerve signals and shit. So Igor freaks out about that, chokes Bomer, throws him against the equipment, which, like, explodes because it's, you know, Tesla coils and shit. Basically, that sets off a fire that leads to the whole house going up in flames, which then leads to the house basically exploding and burying the monster in uh, rubble, and Eric and Elsa make it out so that, you know, just in time to see the sun rise, the end. But Frankenstein's in there. Yes, he definitely super dies. Yeah. Oh, it's fucking a literal ghost, Ben. Yeah, this movie's wild. Like, this movie, this movie, it doesn't really have a story. No. So much as it has, like, a series of events in order to sort of get us to beats that it needs to hit and to hit, like, familiar series tropes and, like, accomplish certain story goals, right? Like, this movie has a story that's basically, like, a checklist, you know? Because it's like, okay, have to explain how the monster survives from the last movie. Mm -hmm. Have to get the monster to, like, another Dr. Frankenstein that isn't Wolf. Mm -hmm. So where's that guy? What's his deal? Have to get the... Um, a reason for the movie to be called Ghost of Frankenstein, have to... Get a girl. Yeah, have the monster have pathos, reestablish the monster's pathos, that's important, so we're going to have the little girl again, you know, have to have a, an, an, an older girl... An adult girl sexy woman. To threaten. Yeah. Have to have, you know, a young sexy man for her to be attracted to. Young? Well, they got, they got half right. Sure. Um, you know, we have to have a <laughs> mad so scientist... Sweet. For, yeah, mad scientists. You know, we have to have something for Igor to do, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's just a bunch of stuff that happens. And, like, it's fine. Like, the ghost thing is kind of wild, right? But nothing that happens in this movie is kind of super ridiculous, considering the type of movie this is. It's just that there isn't, like, the movie's not about anything, right? In the way that the first three movies were. Like, we talked in the intro about how, like, you know, the first two movies were about these big social ideas, so it was a bit of a letdown when the third one was just, you know, just had a normal character theme, like a normal story does. <laughs> but, like, this movie doesn't even have that, right? Like, this movie is just stuff happening. The closest that I could think of this movie being about is the idea of a curse. Mm -hmm. Because I suspect I have no evidence to support this, but I suspect that the first draft of this might have been called The Curse of Frankenstein, because everyone keeps talking about, like, our town is cursed mm -hmm. because of Frankenstein. Ludwig saying that our name is cursed because it's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So they changed it to ghost because then it would be a metaphorical type of curse, and then they had an actual ghost anyways. But I digress. Um, so the idea of, like, cruel fate, cursed to follow it... Um, but we kind of already dealt with 
a sense of like a painful legacy. We did that in Sun. Yeah, yeah is so the thing. Like, and, and better. And like the thing is, is you can really, I think, tell that Ludwig was Wolf in earlier drafts. Yeah. Because he just like knows Igor, and Igor just kind of knows him, and they like get on the same page like really quickly. And yeah, it's just a little weird that there's this other son of Frankenstein who. I mean, Wolf lives at the end yes. of Sun, so he could have told Ludwig when he gave him the journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exa- now, that's what I'm saying. You know, coming back to the idea of this versus Son of Frankenstein, like, the performances in this movie are fine. No one really stands out as being bad, but no one really stands out as being good either, and that starts from the top down with Cedric Hardwick. Like, yeah. this is a guy who's, like, a pretty good actor, from the fact that he's, you know, a knight and has been in a million Shakespeare movies. And, you know, we liked him in Invisible Man Returns, as I recall. But he's kind of nothing in this movie. Like, compared to the amount of drama they were able to wrung out of putting his brother in a very similar situation, Ludwig seems mildly flustered by the events going on around him as compared to his brother Wolf's total mental breakdown. You know, like... He's just, I don't know if it's just the fact that Cedric Hardwick projects way too much of that, like, unflappable British patriarch kind of thing, Mm. but, like, there's no real drama going on here with his character. Like, it's it's kind of there, but it's a pale shadow of what it was in Sun. Yeah, like, the closest moment is kind of when the ghost shows up because of the idea of, like, him talking to himself and him, like, rationalizing kind of with, like, that this curse idea, mm-hmm. like, the Frankensteins can't help themselves but rationalize keeping the creature going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's that idea of, like, having to redeem the family, right? Yeah. And, like, if, if they wanted the idea of, like, legacy or, like, cursed thing to continue, the emphasis should have been on Elsa. Yeah, and... Because... Her dad knows all about this and has not said a word to her about it. She learns about it by reading the journals that he happens to leave out. Yes. So it should be a realization for her to be like, I thought we were, like, like learning the family, the extreme dark of the family history. Like, that would have been, like, something for this movie to latch onto. Yeah, they almost get there, right? Like, it's established that, like, yeah, as you said, like, Ludwig already knows about all this. She doesn't. She's totally innocent about it. And Ludwig is actually, at the start of the movie, going to a lot of trouble to keep these things away from her. She's the one who finds the journals, and uh, when she opens them up, the words turn into stock footage from the previous movies uh, so that, you know, we can get any latecomers to the audience caught up. <laughs> but, um, you know, and then she has the conversation with her dad, like, you know, what about, I never knew, and blah, blah, blah. And then she doesn't really do anything for the rest of the movie. She's just kind of in scenes, present to be either threatened or... Concerned. To, con- concerned, exactly. The movie isn't really about her. It doesn't do anything with that realization on her part. Uh, it doesn't dig deeper into that in any way. And you get the sense that, oh, the movie did that whole thing with her not knowing what was going on just so it could have someone that the story could reasonably give that exposition to. Because we needed to do it, right? We needed to have that exposition. But the exposition is given via stock footage. It's no one is is telling her mm-hmm. what's going on. So we could have had the stock footage over the text 
when fucking Ludwig is looking at the journals, you know? Like, we didn't need it to be her. And so it's such a fucking waste yeah, of her, her. Her character, her character uh, and Ralph Bellamy's character exist basically for the sake of existing. Yeah. Like, they're, they're totally pointless. They're just there because we need a breeding pair to survive at the end of the movie. Repopulate the earth. Well, it's the law. All of these movies we've seen always end with the leading man and the leading lady, you know, together at the end. It's like there's some sort of rule that we can't have a horror movie that kills off all the characters. Yeah. Because they have nothing to do with the story. They're literally just there so we can see them hug at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, Speaking of which, Kenton, what happened, my dude? You know, I don't want to give him too much of a hard time. Because... You know, while we've been ragging on this movie a bit, everything here is generally competent. Like, the people, there's a baseline of skill here that says everyone making this movie knows how to make a movie. Nobody making this movie is incompetent. The writer, that's a different story. But, like, (laughs) on set, in the making of it, uh, the movie looks, you know, good in the sense that nothing looks bad, right? The sense I kind of got was Kenton is doing his best with the time and the budget he's being allotted. It's not really his fault. Because occasionally, there are some cool bits of lighting, some bits of... He has this recurring motif that he uses of the monster's shadow, uh, a very Nosferatu-esque thing that he does with the monster that I don't recall any of the previous directors really doing. No. Um, There's some cool stuff with the staging from here and there. There's a cool stuff with the compositions now and again. Um, You know, I appreciate it when we get it. The impression I got when I saw the movie occasionally do something cool with the visuals or the staging, um, is that these things probably only happened when they had a little bit of extra time that day to do it. You know, on a day when we were running ahead of schedule, okay, well, let's maybe do something cool for the next shot, right? Sure. That's kind of the sense I get. So I don't, I don't want to put too much on Kenton when, you know, with little time and little money, he still made a movie that looks like a movie, right? Like, nothing in this is like totally bizarro, poverty row, what the hell is this, you know? But on the other hand, it's fairly fucking generic, Yes. Like, think about the... Maybe this is just my bias about German Expressionism, but Son of Frankenstein, the look of that movie, Mm -hmm. compared to this, even just, like, the idea of, like, a mansion that is, like, bizarro, weird angles... Weird-ass shadows, like, what the heck? What was the architect thinking when he built this house yeah. standing compared to, yeah, it's a castle. Well, I think the thing that I saw watching this movie is I don't think any of the sets we see in this movie were built for this movie. Oh, 100% not. Like, none of the sets look like anything. Um, or rather, they look too much like a thing in the sense that, like... <laughs> The village just looks like a village, right? The study in the mansion just looks like a study. The laboratory is just a laboratory. The dungeon is just a dungeon. There's nothing special. You get the sense that these are sets that you just pulled out of storage and could use for any movie. And so, you know, if Kenton's not bringing a lot to this movie visually, it's because he's stuck with a bunch of sets that are just there. And so he's doing his best with lighting and shadow and framing to make this a horror movie. But yeah, the movie looks generic because... It is generic, because it's being made out of generic cookie-cutter pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's not bad in the sense that, you know, the sets don't look cheap. 
They don't look fake. You know, you, it's th- just bland. This is yeah. This is what I'm coming back to again and again. Is you know, it's it's all competent. You know, this isn't um, an F, but it's definitely like C's get degrees kind of situation. <laughs> you know. Sure. Fair. But it does mean when we're grading, aka ranking, it's gonna get a C grade. Yeah, I mean, you know, among the cast, um, I said that no one really stood out as bad, but no one really stood out as good. Lugosi and Atwill are good, I think, um, because they're just who they are. They know what this movie needs, they know what it is, um, they're pros of this genre and of these roles in particular. Like, Lugosi can do Igor with his eyes closed. He doesn't need a good director or a good script to make Igor good because he's so into that role. Atwell's done the mad scientist thing so many times that he can play Bomer in his sleep. He doesn't need the movie around him to be good for him to be good. Unfortunately, Cheney's kind of nothing. Yeah, but he he's not really able to do anything, you know? I mean, he, he's mute. He's stumbling around even when he's not when, when, like, the creature isn't blind, he has, like, these, like, prosthetic things that close his eyes enough that, like, you can't see what's going on. Yeah, he has very thick prosthetic eyelids. Um, when, the- he's, when he's speaking and Lugosi's coming through, you get a sense of, like, oh, now he's able to, like, act a little bit, so you get a little bit of sense of him in the role, but otherwise, yes, you're right, he is nothing, but, like, A, it's a very difficult role if you ain't good. Karloff was good. I'm I'm very sorry, Cheney, but ooh, you ain't good. That's what I'm saying, right? Is you know, like Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein gives the monster very little to do, but most of what it is is sort of greatest hits of the previous movies in a lot of ways. So you could have just emulated that. Cheney doesn't do anything. Like the thing that made Karloff impressive as the monster is everyone went, oh wow, he was given very little and look what he did with it. Mm -hmm. Because the trick is, yeah, you're under all this makeup and you don't have any lines, so you have to emote the hell out of your face and your facial expressions and and show some emotion. Chaney is just stone-faced as the monster. He doesn't grunt or anything? He doesn't grimace, he doesn't move a muscle in his face. Like, even when you know, there's the scene where um, Frankenstein goes to the police where they've got him chained up and the monster reacts to seeing Frankenstein and breaks all the chains and stuff. Cheney isn't doing anything expression-wise during any of that. Or if he is, we can't tell. Yeah, it's, it's, he's just flat, nothing as the monster. And, and you're entirely right, Sarah. It comes down to the fact that, like, Cheney's good at two things. Lovable, lunkhead, and self-pitying tragedy. And this is neither of that. So he's got nothing to work with. Lunkhead. But (laughs) in the broadest strokes. Sure. Is Eric Ernst a Nazi? Like, is Ralph Bellamy's character a Nazi? He's one of the police officers. No, he's He's a prosecutor. He's the chief prosecutor. But, yes. Okay. Yeah, because he works for the state. Right, it's so... And his police officers are in SS uniforms, dude. Yeah, like like no-name brand SS uniforms with, like, the 
Yeah, like, like oh, I was about to say President's Choice, but I guess it would be Fuhrer's Choice. <laughs> President's <laughs> Choice is a no-name brand in Canada. Yeah, it's from Real Canadian Superstore. Which is funny, because we don't have presidents. It's the president of the company. I know, but it's just funny. Um, so... The best thing about this movie, the one thing about this movie that's fucking awesome... Is that it's only an hour. No, um, that's actually, as far as I'm concerned, that's a big problem. Because the best thing about this movie is the idea of putting Igor's brain into the monster's body. That's cool, because that's doing something new with the story. That's taking the story to a new place that isn't just rehashing Frankenstein makes a monster over and over again, right? Fair. The problem is... It takes the whole fucking movie to get there. Um, you know, the movie is only an hour long, so if this was a modern movie that went two hours, that would be the midpoint. I don't think this movie needs to be two hours, but I do think putting Igor's brain into the monster's body should have been the midpoint of the story, not the climax. We have this movie that feels like it's building and building and building until that moment, and once that's happened and Igor's in the monster's body, the movie's over in five minutes. Yeah. That should have been what the story was about. This should have been about Igor as the monster, and that should have happened 30 minutes in, not 60 minutes in. But, counterpoint, once Igor is the monster, he's saying, I'm going to go on a rampage, I'm going to take over the country. We've kind of seen Creature goes on rampage. But we haven't seen... What would be interesting and different is the Frankenstein monster has always been the misunderstood monster, right? He's powerful, and he's strong, and if you get him angry, he'll fuck you up, but at the end of the day, he's a nice guy. You know, and he has this pathos and stuff. And he's also never been bright, right? He's he, Even when he could talk, he wasn't that bright. So now we take someone who's kind of a manipulator and wily and, you know, is kind of a devilish figure, put his brain into the creature's body, so now he's got the super strength. Now we have a really evil, intelligent creature so yeah we've seen the creature go on a rampage before but like this is a creature who can have minions who can have plans who can have schemes who can be a fucking super villain right like igor as the monster goes and kills hitler and takes over nazi germany and now he's fucking dr doom from marvel comics right (laughs) like it's bella lugosi with super strength in his own eastern european country that he rules like that's dr doom right there basically like that could have been cool but that would have required a movie with a lot more scope and ambition and probably a much bigger budget than like a B movie could have, right? Like you can't, I think the movie is hobbled by the fact that it has a big idea that it can't do anything with. So it has to just end the movie right when that big idea happens. It's like, it's like if, um, in star Wars, the movie ended when Luke got his lightsaber and like turned it on and was like, Oh cool. And then like all of a sudden, Obi-Wan Kenobi's house just collapsed on them and killed them. It was like, that's the end of the movie, because we can't afford to do anything else. All the money went towards the lightsaber. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, because I would really love to see that movie. Um, yeah, that's fair. I That would be kind of neat. What I was going to say as a, a second counterpoint was, mm. um, it's code times. How are you going to have, like, rampaging and death and all of that with the code? Well... You can have it, you just, you know, you can't be explicit about it, and the evil has to be punished at the end. So, like, have Igor, like, take over the country and become, like, a supervillain, then you just need to have, you know, the good old US of A come in with the army and, and stop him, and you end the movie with, like, buy war bonds and, and 
You know, join but the then, army to stop Igor. That's not a horror movie. Sure. Speaking of <sighs> horror movies, shall we rank this? I just... Just to be clear, I don't think Ghost of Frankenstein is bad. But, as the fourth entry in a series where all the other movies in that series are in the top ten, it's just a very noticeable letdown. You know, because we've gone from top ten material to a serviceable, entertaining, competent little B-movie. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, so where are you kind of looking, Sarah? I was looking between Dracula's Daughter and The Return of Dr. X. 40 to 45. Okay, that's helpful. Your range is entirely inside mine, then. I had a very large range, because I didn't know kind of what to do with this movie. Sure. Um, So, I was thinking that The Return of Dr. X would be at the bottom, because... Humphrey Bogart is just so awkward in it. Right. Whereas our villains in this are like know what they're doing. Yeah, everyone in this movie's been in a horror movie before. They know what the drill is. Yeah. And then, um, because this was such a fucking letdown, dude, I was thinking about um, Dracula's daughter because that was... It's not like Dracula's daughter caused, like, cause and effect, caused the downfall of horror for three years before Son of Frankenstein could revive it again. Nothing of that sort. Um, but it is in that, like, chain of events, you know? It is in the in the domino effect there. Yeah, but it's not, like, because. It's not a direct cause, no. Um, so I, I felt like, you know, if I'm thinking about Dracula's daughter and my frustrations about it, and of it not going far enough, and it kind of, like, rehashing some things that, like, you know, greatest hits, as you've put it, um, I think it does a better job than Ghost of Frankenstein. So, I think, yeah. The, the... But also Murders in the Room Morgue is right above that, and that movie actually scares me. Yeah, D- Dracula's Daughter... Yeah, it's tough because, like, the stuff I don't like in Dracula's Daughter is the comic relief. This movie doesn't really have any comic relief because there's too much going on and too many characters and too much plot to cover and too little screen time to really put any comic relief into it, so I don't have to deal with any, like, bumbling British detectives and stuff. Um, my ceiling was number 24, the man they could not hang. Because that's the, funny, because there's a man they could not hang in here. And that's also a movie about swapping brains. So that's kind of, you know, I thought, okay, that's kind of a comparable thing. I can compare it to that. Isn't, it's the man who changed his mind with swapping brains. Oh, is it? You are right. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Well, it's definitely... Okay. In any case... It's it's not better than the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde, though, so I'll stick with that as my ceiling. Uh, As I made my way down, you know, it was like, okay, okay, I could hear an argument for this versus any of these movies, and my floor was number 47, The Devil Doll, Hmm. because I was like, well, Mystery of the Wax Museum, maybe that's better than this, I don't know. You know, they're both kind of Lionel Atwell, Mad Scientist, kind of exciting, you know, movies... But this is definitely better than The Devil Doll because this movie goes a little weird in some places and a little wild in some places, but it doesn't go as weird and as wild as The Devil Doll, which is like, has no fucking clue what it's doing. (laughs) This movie knows what it's doing, it's just not doing very much. Yeah. So that was my range. So your range is totally inside mine. So let's let's just look at your range then. Really? I would be happy with just putting this above The Return of Dr. X, Below the Invisible Man Returns, if it wasn't for Mark of the Vampire at 42. 
Because that was like, they weren't vampires, they were just actors. Yeah. But at the same time, that whole thing was to try to, like, convince a guy that he killed someone. The plot made no fucking sense. Um, and this plot, at least, like, okay, on the one hand, the plot in Ghost of Frankenstein, you can follow the checklist. You get why they're doing things. Yes. But on the other hand, it raises more questions than answers. Why does this guy... Okay, why is this asylum here? Why are they allowing, like, the state... The mm-hmm. police go in here, and they don't try to shut it down after after they find the dungeon. After the explanation of the dungeon of, like, the more crazy dudes get put in here. Um, the daughter fucking go along with it. Kidnapping the kid. Sure, they didn't kidnap her, but they held her for two weeks. Like, what is going on in this house? This family is so fucked up, Ben. I feel like a lot of these things that you're raising are questions that the script is not meaning to raise. They're just things that are happening, and the script just didn't notice them, right? He has a dungeon because it's a Frankenstein movie, and everyone goes along with it because if they didn't, the movie would be over too early. And they have the kid for two weeks because it needs to be two weeks for the mob to get angry enough and for the monster to recover, so I guess oops. Like, there's just stuff that the script didn't think about. But I think you are right about one thing, which is this movie has a really crazy story. This movie doesn't have a story. This movie has a really crazy plot that, you know, I said it doesn't have a story because it doesn't add up to anything, right? It's not really talking about anything. But when you are watching it, you are right. You can go from A to B to C to D, right? Each thing in succession, you're like, okay, I can see how we got here, right? Da-da-da-da-da-da. Mark of the Vampire is like, hey, this is a Dracula ripoff for like an hour, and then the last half hour is like, actually, this is a Scooby-Doo, like a reverse Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Where we're pretending to be monsters to, like, make the murderer confess or whatever. And it was just like, it doesn't make any fucking sense. It's it's nonsense. Yeah. Um, this is silly and ridiculous, but within its own context. Within the context of the universe... This is set in, which is the... Universal yes, the Studios. Yes, u- exactly. The Universal Horror Movie Universe, which takes place on, you know, Earth U, and is, <laughs> has nothing to do with, with the real world. This makes sense. You sure. know what I mean? So yeah, I, I think I'm okay with that. I also think it's it makes sense to put this below the 1935 Student of Prague, because I think that has a bit more of an attempt at horror than this does. Yeah. You know, like this, this movie, this is, this Ghost of Frankenstein is the very, like, picture perfect definition of like, your late night, you know, monster chiller horror theater kind of movie, where it's, it's just some fun Halloween-y nonsense, basically. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. So, entering the list at number 42... The Ghost of Frankenstein from 1942, directed by Earl C. Kenton. I like that it's from 1942 and it's going in at 42. Sure, sure, sure. It's also, I guess it's not like our all-time lowest Frankenstein movie because Thomas Edison Frankenstein's at number 60. Yeah. But it's pretty low compared to (laughs) the other three. Combo breaker! (laughs) 
If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, the other Frankenstein episodes, um, for example. And you can also find an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit an appeals through our, our ask box on Tumblr, or send us an email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you listen to the show on a service that lets you leave a rating or a review, go ahead and do so. We would really appreciate it. Uh, it helps out podcasts um, because it encourages algorithms to make them more visible, basically. Uh, if that is not something that you can do because of whatever service you listen to us on doesn't have the option, you can still help us out by telling people about us the old-fashioned way through word of mouth whether that's online or just face-to-face. Another way you can help out the show, if you enjoy it, is by heading over to our Patreon. At patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At one dollar, you will be thanked on the show. At the five dollar level, however, you'll get access to bonus audio that comes out every week, cut from previous episodes. And at the ten dollar... And at the $10 level, you'll get access to horror short fiction uh, written by me that is not published anywhere else, and that's every month. Also, once you've joined up at the appropriate level, you'll get access to all of the previous releases at that level as well. There's no, like, timed releases on our Patreon. And if we meet our goal of $150 a month from patrons, we will A, be incredibly thankful and humbled, and B, we will start doing monthly bonus episodes of horror-adjacent films like Young Frankenstein. Or Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Yeah. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are watching one of the Monogram 9. It's... Which number would this be by uh, now? Like number ugh. 5 or something? I have no idea. Oh, okay. It's Bela Lugosi in a movie that I've been told has the most, like, nonsense plot that we've run into so far. Mm. It's called The Corpse Vanishes. Is it about a vanishing corpse? I have no idea what it's about. Is he a magician and he, like, misplaces his, like, assistant that he puts in a box? I think he's something about murdering people to cure his wife who might be <laughs> undead or something. I don't know. <laughs> Alternative Dr. Free's origin story? Yeah, I have no clue. We'll have to see when we watch it next week. Alright. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.